Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we are talking about Bond, James Bond, specifically the 2012 Bond film Skyfall. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to talk about how Skyfall the movie Skyfall helps us think about life in the church and in the world. That was, I don't know why that's in there. Well, maybe I. No, a, I did that as a dumb Bond, James Bond joke and you didn't oh. get it at all. So I should let it go. <laughs> well, we're stuck with it now. It's in there now. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You ruined my joke. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> So in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Skyfall itself, Skyfall, the movie Skyfall, uh, might help us understand the lectionary passages for April 4th, which is Easter Sunday of this year, year B. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following or reading. So Adam, I, I, usually I write a big introduction here to this movie, but I don't want to do that today. I just want to ask you, are you a James Bond guy? Were you a James Bond guy? Did you grow up with this franchise? What What is James Bond to you? Yeah, no, I am. I um, so I I think we all have slightly different uh, histories with this particular franchise. I mean, it's it's a franchise that's been around since the early '60s. So every generation gets to find it anew and find it in their own way. I think. The, the earliest memories I have is having a video cassette of The Living Daylights with Timothy Dalton as Bond and just watching it a lot because we only had so many video cassettes. Uh, and, Isn't that the one and, with the cello? Yes. Yeah, it okay. The, it's okay. the one with the cello. Um, and, and, and they like go in a, they like go in a tube into Germany. They like ride a tube. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's okay. it. You got All right. it. All right. Um, so I, I watched that a lot. Um, as, and then we, I don't remember how we got this because I mean, I grew up in, with a single parent, but at some point, I think my uncle was paying for HBO in our house. And so he, so there were a number of Bond movies that were always kind of flickering in and out of HBO. So I, I watched that a lot, but I honestly, the thing that made me a James Bond fan and that piqued my interest in previous James Bond films and then just kind of said, just kind of set me on a course, well, I'll always watch a James Bond movie, um, is playing somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 hours of GoldenEye, the video game. Sure. <laughs> Which is hard to sort of underestimate how popular that game was in the late 90s. It's a huge deal. When yeah. I played a lot of video games. So... Um, so in GoldenEye, you get to like play all of these past villains, right? 
and some past uh, bonds. And that kind of piqued my interest. And I think this also coincided with right around the time when Netflix as a DVD mail order service started to come up. And so then I just had the opportunity to just send away and like kind of like work my way through all the Bond films. So I've seen every Bond movie. Some of them I've seen many, many times. Some of them I've only seen once. Uh, the George Lazenby in Her Majesty's Secret Service. That's a that's a one timer. But overall, I, I think I find the um, the genre, the convention and the type all pretty comforting. You sort of know that there's going to start, you're going to start with a big action sequence. You know that there's going to be some MacGuffin that brings Bond into some uh, some conflict with a supervillain who is bent on something. And in the midst of that, he's going to drink, he's going to shoot people, and he's going to have sex with a beautiful woman. Um, I don't think anything changes. I don't think, like... I don't think I've ever, there's no, there's no way to take this genre and make it something new, right? Like the distance between Tim Burton doing Batman and Christopher Nolan doing Batman could be pretty vast, but I don't think that you're allowed to do that with Bond. You don't think, I, think, I mean, I, I feel like this movie, I mean, I feel like Skyfall, Casino Royale, the, 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 the modern day Bonds are, are pretty far away from Octopussy and Moonraker and some of the big Roger Moore kind of where it's literally a circus act and right, it's right? kind of silly and um, it, where it, it's you know the the um, um, live and let die where they're doing the the car jumps corkscrew <laughs> over the bridge like I yeah, mean some of these awesome. kind of classic late seventies early 80s bonds that are just campy as all get out and then yeah I, when he runs across the alligators yeah um, no exactly and i mean i part of my working theory in terms of talking about skyfall and and, and where i think this franchise is 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 that for a long time it was it was this both and where you've got bond running across the heads of the alligators you've got this super campy elaborate action sequence stuff and, and then, gadgets, right? And Lots gadgets, of gadgets, all of that. And then you're you're also trying to kind of at at, po- at places build gravitas character, whether it's like the kind of broader cultural character of Cold War tension, or specific things like the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service when Bond's wife is killed. Yeah, and it's super yeah. tragic. And then several movies later, we've got Bond throwing Blofeld off of the moving helicopter in vengeance. Like it, you know, you take this deeply human moment and then you, the, the way you pay for it is with cartoonish action. And I feel like in some ways that tension has split into two movie franchises. And huh. one of them, the current Bond is really only gravitas and cartoonish slapstick head of the alligator bond has become the fast and the furious franchise so we whoa, we, whoa, whoa, whoa. they've separated into two distinct things are you saying paul walker driving off with wiz khalifa playing behind him it wasn't full of gravitas i'm, I'm saying the heart <laughs> of that franchise is in a different place and and, and i have to say that i mean I, i'm jumping ahead but into skyfall that i feel like this movie is great for people who love Bond 
in Gravitas. Yeah. And who, love, and who love this series when it is trying to reflect on itself or trying to um, reckon with itself. There's all kinds of reckoning. This movie is just like reckoning the movie. <laughs> it's like, but, but I, did you know that people have pasts? Think on your <laughs> sins, Adam. But it's, but I also find it deeply frustrating because I feel like it's just not what this franchise is supposed to do. It's not in its DNA. And there's only so many times that you can reckon with yourself before you just end up like, well, then why are we making this movie? Um, so tell it's me- It's a really good point. I, I think with my own relationship with these stories, there was a point when I saw the silly parts of Bond, like in the living daylights or some ridiculousness, right? Like that, I thought it was cool, right? I, I didn't. I didn't know that it was supposed to be campy. It's a little bit like being six or seven and watching the Adam West Batman and being like, "Hey, this is kind of cool. I'm interested in this," not knowing that there's a whole culture and the creative sort of spirit behind this is is not landing in the way that maybe it was intended. Uh, so. I, I recognize that those those are two, the two sides of the Bond franchise. And I think if you create a Bond movie, you have to figure out which side you're going to try and play up. And to some extent, I mean, the, maybe the Batman uh, analogy is apt, which is, I think that's the way that you have to do it with Batman too. Um, but at the same time, I, what I what I mean by like, bond is like the convention is always going to be there and it's like bond himself is always going to have sly quips he's always gonna drink he's always gonna have sex like that never changes and i actually find that quite comforting i always know that when i go into a bond movie that i will i will be entertained for two hours um when i have to turn on my critical brain that wants to say like was that a good movie I, most of the time it's not that said, I actually think Skyfall is a pretty good movie. I actually, it's one of my favorite Bond films. And part of the reason that it is, is that it seems to have some, um, some understanding of the genre, of the convention. It seems to be reflecting on it, but it also goes in some unique territories. And the two unique ter territories that I think are most interesting to me are, have very little to do with James Bond as a character. They have to do with M, and they have to do with Silva, the, the villain, um, both of whom I think actually carry this movie. I, I think Javier Bardem's performance and Judy Dench's performance are pretty are great. And, and those roles generally are pretty flat. The, the Judy Dench role, we is the substitute for the female lead where there's a love interest. And in this movie, they've substituted out the love interest. They kill her actually pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And in the sort of sleight of hand, they make Judy Dench that role, which opens up the, the, some of the pathos in some new directions. The second part is the Javier Bardem piece, which is you're trying to find the sort of shadow side of Bond, where someone who has had very similar experiences to him is trying to deal with what it means to be twisted by your government. And part of the reason why I like this is this is this is one of the first movies that sort of explicitly acknowledges how homoerotic these movies are. 
And and there is this moment where Bond almost admits to having to having a sexual libido that is broad-minded. And that was like kind of shocking in the moment too. So between those two instances, those those two characters, I, I find this movie to be pretty interesting. And then finally, like the, the, the sort of like Home Alone end, um, I thought was a creative way to, to, to move the movie. Beyond all of that, this is an exceedingly well-made movie. I think Sam Mendes does a great job. But really, the, the star at the end of this, when I'm done, there are two of them. Um, it's Roger Deakins. Uh, the cinematographer and it's Thomas Newman, the the um, composer. I think these are among the best shot Bond movies and the best scored Bond movies. I agree with a lot of that. Um, I, I think you know there's um sometimes when we talk about the Oscars, we talk about the difference between best acting and most acting. I think Roger Deakins and Sam Mendes clearly deserve the most cinematography award for this movie. (laughs) But there are times in which I'm not sure that the ponderousness of the camera here is in service of what this franchise is trying to do. It's like you're trying to take a James Bond movie and make it into a Wong Kar Wai movie or something. And it's just, it doesn't... (laughs) And I just, I, I just don't know if the one thing fits inside the other. Um, I, I, I mean, but how got, many filters do you think Roger Deakins brought with him? I actually got quite <laughs> bored watching this movie yesterday because it, it because the, long. the cinematography long. makes it so slow at points compared to like what a Bond action movie ought to do. And I know that I'm, I am standing on the wrong side of the seesaw about critical reception to this movie. Like people love this movie, but I, I find it kind of grating um, because I, <laughs> I think it's so, so heavy. Now I do think there are things, I, I think you're absolutely right about the way in which M becomes the romantic interest. And, and I think that is fascinating and really, really well done. I think that's the high point of the film. I think Javier Bardem is a great actor who gives a really good performance here in a role that was also played by Sean Bean in the Golden in Goldeneye in 1995. So I, I don't think kind of like shadow side Bond, other double O agent who has come back for vengeance is, is new material here. At least it's not new material in the way that the film seems to think that it's new material. So That's there's, fair. Um, so I, you know, but but then again, like you put Bardem on screen, you th- that, you know, th- that that long long monologue shot where he is first coming in to to introduce himself to Bond and giving the rat speech is so like it's it's so opulent, right? It's so we'll so talk sh- about most acting, right? Like yeah, no, yeah, yeah, it's it's most it acting, awesome. most directing, most it's so great, right? It's so amazing. I love uh-huh. that. But I, because but I he, he's the only like one the, in this movie that can like do that. It feels like a ship that's that's just yeah. it's it's so weighted down now that I don't know whether I that, that it can move um, or go anywhere. So we're and it's and it's like we're doing Bond as referendum on British colonialism and imperialism, which it always sort of is. Um, and I and I feel like this film thinks that it's having a lot of new ideas that I'm not sure are actually that new 
No, they're not new, but they they're a little bit new to Bond. I, I, you're right to recognize that Sean Bean, the Sean, the Golden Eye, has some um, has some similarities with this. But I mean, Javier Bardem is twice the actor Sean Bean is. But at the at the end of the day, the the idea is how do you how do you how do you find the internal pathos of Bond, who is himself sort of unflappable, right? And that's always the question of every Bond, which is like, how do you get him to care? Um, and generally it involves, you sort of put a woman in peril. Um, this has a little bit more than that. I, I do think this franchise has not fully fleshed out, and this is what I think this movie is trying to do, how twisted the job makes somebody. Um, and this is like, I, I think this is like fully ripped off from, I mean, I mean, I think we can all agree the the searchers does this best. <laughs> John Ford's The Searchers is the best sort of thoughtful, critical analysis of the way in which war twists somebody in such a tremendous way that when you put them to in a position to protect others, they can do it but you have damaged them beyond recognition. They are not fit for polite society. So in The Searchers, Ethan is, uh, the John Wayne character is like, he will go and, and find Natalie Wood, but he's gonna kill a lot of people on the way and he's gonna do it and he's a monster. But sometimes you need a monster to go and fight monsters. That's not, that's not a new idea. That's a very ancient idea about how sure. sort of peace and security works. What I like about this is that we bond, at least as we understand it, is supposed to be this, uh, this debonair, unflappable, always cool and in control super spy who is attractive to everyone who comes around him and is unkillable. And Skyfall says, that's the mask. That's not real Bond, because when one Bond is good and dead, and everyone thinks he's dead, he's a drunk. And he's damaged, and he can't get anything done, and he's, he's a sort of shell of himself. And we see, like, they actually do a good job of making Daniel Craig look terrible. At the beginning part of this movie and by the time he cleans up we're like oh bond is back but i think we're supposed to recognize that that bond is just a it's just a suit it's just a suit in a walter pp nine seven whatever it is the gun um so that is a sort of that's a different idea like we get to see the twisted broken bond a little bit more in this movie and i think like i i appreciate i appreciate that i the the fact that this is two and a half hours is utterly self-indulgent and of a time when everybody thought that they should be able to make two and a half hour movies um i hope that studios recognize that a two and a half hour movie is no longer necessary but in this instance i i have some latitude for them so 
Again, you, you were describing a movie that sounds better than the movie that I watched. Um, <laughs> and I know that I'm on the wrong side, but I'm just going to live here for a while. Um, You're not on the wrong side. I, mean, I, 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 I do think that there are moments in the history of the franchise where we have seen the cost to Bond of the work that he does. We see it at the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which you casually dismissed earlier, but it's actually a pretty decent movie. You also see it, I think, at the end of Casino Royale to some degree as they're first setting up this Daniel Craig character uh, who is wrestling with the cost of the work that he's just done. In this movie, the, the big arc is Bond dies on the job, we have this kind of drunk, broken Bond at the beginning. Now, it's not new that Bond would have to come back into service after something. I mean, he he dies right. intentionally at the, beginning of you, at the beginning of You Only Live Twice. He has to work his way back into service in, um, uh, I, I think, Thunderball and certainly the Thunder, the um, non-union equivalent Thunderball, which is uh, Never Say Never Again. Um, <laughs> but in this movie, he works his way back in, and at the very end of the movie, he shows up ready and ready to go for work. Like what? What? The 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 finale of this film, where he walks into the office and Monty Penny is at her desk, where she is classically and historically in this franchise, and he walks into M's office, which is where it is classically and historically in this franchise, and we have sort of pressed reset. Now we have new characters, but we are. The end of this film feels like the preface and setup to many of the classic Bond films. Right. Put all these characters back in their place. And so instead of the end of The Searchers, where the door closes. Yeah, that's right. And Wayne is now cast out and something has irrevocably changed about the relationships in that film. The cost has been paid. In this film, the cost is dismissed. Yeah, now, it's deeply work, immoral, this movie, and in, in in, all of them. At, at the end of it, Bond is not grieving him. He's not doing his processing. He's not in therapy or at a beach or drunk or wherever. I mean, those things would all, for my money, be better than he shows up dressed and ready to go for work and is flirting with Monty Penny. Like, none of this has happened? Well, so I this will, is not I, a movie that exposes cost. This is a movie that hides cost. <laughs> That's fair. I I think these movies are deeply immoral. There is no moral center to James Bond. Like, can you? Is there one? No, they they are, um, they are British propaganda. No, I'm not saying about moral. I'm saying heart. like if if the <laughs> argument is that this is a movie that shows the cost to Bond of the work that he does, then I don't see it because he's just there at the end like nothing ever happened. Yeah, but I think I think that's the condition of 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 making the movie, which is the game is over. The king has been toppled. Now the board has to get reset. Because we're because we're under the weight of having to make the next one. Because yeah. at the end, because the credits are going to roll and it's going to say James Bond will return. And Again. there is there is financial obligation to put your character back together in a way that means that the franchise can never be honest 
about the costs to its characters, which means it can right. never successfully make the movie that you're describing that you saw. <laughs> it can only hint at it, right? It can try and make it in the first half, try and create some sort of pathos about the past and its influence on our lives by burning down James Bond's ancestral home. <laughs> I mean, I, but I think that's like, I don't, I don't have high bars for this, you know, like I, I it's comical to invoke John Ford's The Searchers because it, it, John right. Ford's The Searchers is one of the five best movies in American history. Um, there's, there's no universe where the Bond films even come close to that type of sort of moral questioning of the human experience. This movie, at least aware, is aware that it doesn't. And that, I think, does make it unique. And maybe we want a sort of hermetically sealed uh, world for our bonds to live in. But, you know, it seems to recognize that colonialism exists, that MI6 is, um, is amoral, and that the that Bond himself is, I mean, I think it, it's not in this movie, but there's another movie where they just call him like, they just call him a weapon. They call him a tool or a gun or something like that. And that sounds about right. And so, but let me ask you a question. As you, I mean, as you watch a movie like this or as if you like watch any Bond movie, what is it that you want from it? Like, what is it? that you expect it to provide you over the course of a couple hours? Uh, invisible cars. <laughs> Space fights. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as a kid, I mean, I watched these movies a lot as a kid and a teenager. I think they were on like TBS or TNT or something in my orbit. Maybe that's wrong, but I feel like I, I've watched a lot of these um, I definitely had Roger Moore preferences growing up. Like I was in it for, I, I loved Moonraker as a kid. I loved Moonraker. Because it was in outer space and I was a boy. Yeah, and it was amazing. Was cool, right? Like, and that I, I recognize now that that movie is not as well put together as some of the Sean Connery ones. But I I, I, I love the, that's that was the DNA for me. Um, oh, that's a, that's really high on my list of rankings just because of the nostalgia factor for sure. Um, and then I remember very, very clearly, so what, Living Daylights came out in 89, I think, so uh -huh. I would have been 10. So I didn't see that movie in a theater, but I, but I saw Goldeneye on opening night. Um, it was 95, so there was a little bit of a gap there. And in that gap is when I became a Bond, um, when I became Bond fluent. And so when I, I showed up on opening night to watch Goldeneye, and that dude, um, jumps off at that dam. Oh, the dam! And yeah. lands in the plane. And like, I have never had my mind blown. I have never been more at home in a mo moment of a movie in a theater than right then. And so for me, like, Goldeneye is is about as good as that franchise gets. Um, I, I I I love that movie. Uh, the the. I love um, For Much With Love for me and Spy Who Loved Me are 
those three are sort of the ones that I tend to pivot around the most, which are really different in some ways. But yeah. um, but I think I think Goldeneye has to to me has the special sauce just right, where it is a campy dumb action movie that gestures towards and pretends to reckon with kind of real substantial issues of geopolitics. Um, but it's not, but it doesn't have the cart before the horse. Uh, it's one in service of the other. Um, Alan Cummings is a great, great character actor in that movie too. Um, I think part of what I want in a Bond movie, I mean, part of it is, is sort of a big screen global tourism thing, right? Like I want to yep. go to beautiful exotic places and see them filmed beautifully. And so the, the, you know, Bond never actually does the Indiana Jones graphic where you get on a plane and watch it go across the map. But part of it is like, I'm in any movie where at some point you get on a plane and go across the map. And, and then all of a sudden you're in Budapest or Rio or Hong Kong or whatever. There's something voyeuristic about that that uh, I, I quite like. Um, and I think there's something as you pointed out earlier, pleasurable in the genre convention in the familiarity of it. I mean, there are parts of those Roger Moore movies where you can be watching them. You can show up in the middle and watch 15 minutes and not be sure which movie you're watching because no, you, that, they're they, all so they, interchangeable. They And they, they bleed together in my mind a lot, right? Yeah. Like, so even as you, like you're talking about these individual films that you like, they're, they're kind of grouped in my, in my brain. And I, and I can't tell the difference between them a lot of the time. I have a little bit of a running theory that the best Bond movies are consistently the first ones with new Bond actors um, where they have had to do the most specific kind of work rethinking the franchise and then right. they fall into their convention. So this is less true with Sean Connery because Dr. No, they're still finding their legs. Although the next two are Goldfinger and From Russia With Love, which are regularly yeah. held up as the best things the franchise ever does. I really like You Only Live Twice. I really like that movie. Um, and the first- Roald Dahl wrote it. <laughs> Did you know that? Oh, I did not know that. Roald Dahl wrote the screenplay. Yeah. That's wild. Um, you know, I think Goldeneye, the first Brosnan, um, Casino Royale, the first Daniel Craig. These are places where the, the 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 franchise has kind of grabbed onto something, grabbed onto a new idea, wrestled with something, and then I mean, obviously, like the Pierce Brosnan films go way into camp really, really fast, and you end up at Invisible Car, um, which is too far, and then they kind of reset with Daniel Craig, and I and I I think that with Daniel Craig, we've we're sort of, instead of going to invisible car, we're just going into ponderousness. Um, and it, it seems to be more pondery and pondery as we go. <laughs> I know. I love it though. I but, love but, it. I, but we I we just, should talk about preaching somewhere in here. No, though, no, let's, I mean, let's talk about the theology of this, right? Like, do you have a theology of Bond or a theology of Skyfall as you watch it? Like, what, have, what about this movie or about the franchise itself sort of helps you understand something or provides a helpful analogy for the for the work that you do well we're, we're about to talk about easter scripture texts and i feel like that's where this is i mean i feel like we should talk about the we should talk about it through the lens of that scripture 
Yeah, let's do it. So let's, yeah, let's, I mean, I think we're going to talk about resurrection, right? I mean, yeah, that's the thing, right? <laughs> and how you resurrect the same character over and over and over again. We're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work they're doing. Matt, the, the cover story of uh, the last issue was by Martha Tatarnik. Um, and it's an essay on why she's beginning to re-love substitutionary atonement. Um, I found a really thoughtful and provocative piece. Uh, it's especially for those of us who first learned to love Jesus and the church using substitutionary vocabulary and have had to wrestle with that and come to terms with how that vocabulary has influenced us and conditioned us for particular types of theology. So I commit it to you. I think it's worth reading for everybody who, who like me, kind of grew up with that language in the water. Uh, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Matt, preaching. Text for the lectionary are year B, April 4, Easter. I mean, there's a sermon from Peter in Acts 10. There's Isaiah's vision of the heavenly banquet. And, uh, and you have John's resurrection account that's always given in the lectionary. But in year B, we get to look to Mark, which is the fun and interesting challenge of year B. So here are the texts. You talk about Peter in Acts 10 if you like, or Isaiah if you want, but it's Easter. Where does Skyfall land for you? Well, I mean, I think this is, we, we, we get Mark, right? We get the short ending of Mark where the tomb is open and the body is gone and nobody knows what happens after that. Uh, it's this sort of, um, it, it, it leaves on a bit of a cliffhanger with, as various scholars have observed, Jesus unloosed, unleashed uh, into the world and we don't see what comes next. Um, there's a bit of, a, of an unhinged quality to the short ending of Mark. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, which I do think resonates with the resurrection at, in the first act of this film, um, that the bond who comes back to life um, or who was never dead, but anyway, the bond that the movie pretends comes back to life is is more unhinged, uh, is not playing by the standard rules of, M of MI6, um, is not bound by some of the conventions of genre, uh, then unfortunately the movie keeps going. I mean, in the conversation we've already had, and I think in yeah. the and I think in the final moments of this film, the movie puts back in the box what this text blessedly leaves open. Yeah, um, and so you know, I I think that's where resurrection shows up for me here. There is a question also, of course, that is not so much in this Mark text, but certainly is going to show up in all the Easter two texts with Thomas about um, what it means for us to be able to see the wounds. Um, we see this bruised and battered bond. He doesn't pass the tests, right? He 
he thinks he dies M tells him he dies but he doesn't pass the tests his body is too messed up um and it, his body has suffered from this kind of spiritual metaphorical death that he's gone through and that matters a lot until the film decides that it doesn't uh, and and whereas you know for us it it matters that it, it matters that we see Jesus's wounds. Um, Thomas demands to see them because it's proof of something. But beyond that, for us, it matters that we see Jesus's wounds. It matters that he is wounded because it it allows us to recognize his suffering alongside all of us who also suffer. And it allows us to recognize the real agony and power of of the cross as not being erased by Easter Sunday, but redeemed by it. So I think the visibility of those wounds is, is manifestly important for how we navigate through Easter and is at times on display here in this film and then sort of erased. Yeah, eventually the suit goes back on, right? Right, And yeah. you stop looking at the wounds because it's really important that you don't see those because now he's he's impenetrable again. He's he's undefeated. I, I and that's that's it's worth considering that. I just as as Bond, as you put it, is put back in the box and is returned to his function as a sort of weapon of the state. It's worth just kind of sitting with the anxiety that comes at the end of Mark's gospel, right? Because what what exact no one is quite sure what jesus is going to do <laughs> right and i i think what this movie explains is actually quite helpful for considering christ in contrast so bardem and bond are in some ways considered dead right they're left for dead they don't actually die and at one point javier bardem's character so like notes that they are the resurrected ones, that they have been brought back into positions of power whereby they might right what was wrong. And here we get a sense of like, okay, so what do you expect to happen when people are resurrected? And according to James Bond, what happens when people are resurrected is vengeance, is a deep sense of judgment and recompense that is coming so that if you were on the wrong side of the person who died where death can no longer touch them then you are in great danger yeah i mean this is and i wonder if that's of... yeah i wonder if that's present in mark right which is like the anxiety there as people come and look is if jesus is not there What's he come back to do? Right. This is the end of uh, the Mel Gibson Passion of the Christ, right? Where you get the empty tomb, you get Mark's ending, you get the empty tomb. And um, then we hear like a snare drum. Right. We hear, we, hear, we hear this like militant drum beat as the film goes to credits, which is like, Jesus is not here he's been militarized uh, and now he's out for blood. And he didn't come back and kick your ass, right? Right, like, I yeah, think yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. 
like that's and that's i mean given the assumptions about violence in every bond movie which is that it is redemptive <laughs> it makes sense that that's the the sense that those who are resurrected are now avenging angels but it's worth considering like if that is the expectation of the world in which we live, where, where Christ is unjustly murdered and executed, what does it mean for him to come back and not be an avenging angel? But to be tender and to be present, to be, to be still broken in that moment. I, I, I think James Bond can help you by contrast, consider the types of romantic lusts that we have in this world when, with respect to how justice is meted out and what happens in the wake of resurrection. Yeah, that's really good. And I just, I, I just am, I'm always, I, I think we ought not to inoculate ourselves to how different the gospel is when seen in contrast to that very common sentiment. And that common sentiment is not, did not start with James Bond in 1961 or you know, with the Ian Fleming novels even before that. That sentiment is age old and it and it's shows up in our earliest stories, whether it's the Enuma Elish or the, you know, the the epics of Gilgamesh, that that the violence will make things right. And it doesn't, and Christ doesn't come back to meet out more violence. Right. I, I like that's, that's really helpful and important to me considering like the city that I live in right now has like a terrible gun violence problem. Like we, we had over 400 gun deaths in our, um, in our city last year. And to see how that's like how violence is, has touched, you know, Metro Atlanta in the wake of the shootings in the massage parlors there. It's, it just seems ever present as people try and figure out how to meet the world in the wake of what they perceive to be injustice. And that's why I like, I, J James Bond doesn't have a moral center and it like, it does not look to me like any version of Christianity that's meaningful to me. Right. Well, has, I mean, I've, I've, I've not my congressman, but I've got a neighboring congressman who, in the 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 wake of the Atlanta shootings, um, says uh, that the victims. This is a quote I'm reading: "The victims of race-based violence and their families deserve justice. We believe in justice." There are old sayings in Texas about "find all the rope in Texas and get a tall oak tree." We take justice very seriously, and we ought to do that. Round up the bad guys. Yeah, so that's 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 an argument that the way we get through race-based violence is through lynching, <laughs> which is about as abhorrent a thing as I can imagine to say, especially within the standing of a Christian tradition, that, that, that this belief that violence is the way through violence and racism is the way through racism, um, as opposed to having the imagination of something else which is what I, a little bit about what I hear you saying. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think you just come need to, back for. Yeah, that's like, what are we, like, what are they scared of? 
You know, it says they're afraid. What are they afraid of? And now there, there are lots of ways to answer that, that question. And I think from a preaching standpoint, we, if you're preaching regularly, you know, you'll, you'll have to answer it again sometime when you take up Mark again in, in the pulpit on Easter Sunday. And I'm grateful that there are lots of ways to answer it. Um, in the wake of the violence that surrounds us right now, especially the, the racist violence, it, it's helpful to understand sort of like why people are, would be afraid that someone was coming back. And that, that judgment has been, that, that idea of judgment has been levied toward people in the church quite a bit, right? Which is like, you want to be right when Jesus comes back. You want to be right because the boogeyman is going to come back and he's, if you're not right, then you'll be damned and you'll be tortured and all measure of violence will be inflicted upon you. Um, but I don't think that's what happens in the resurrection. Like I, I think it's really stunning that when Jesus comes back, as you noted earlier, and he enters into the upper room with the disciples. The first thing he says is like, don't be afraid. Right. Like, I'm not, I'm not what you think I am. Peace I bring to you, my peace I leave with you. Yeah, it's, it's, it, and, and in that way, like, I, I come to Easter having been raised, like, I think both of you and I are talking about like how we've been raised on these stories that that these stories of bond like that we watched or the the amount of times that i like played goldeneye and shot people like that stuff can live in you a long time and i'm grateful that the resurrection is can be a helpful inoculation against the impulses that are born of a, of a world that says that, that violence has to be redemptive. And that redemption for, has for to our, be violence. Yeah, 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 for, for our world to work. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is where you can bring in something like the Isaiah passage too, which is to say like the alternative is like a banquet where we eat with each other. Um, and that eating passage, um, and the sort of the vision of the of the shroud that has been lifted or the the curtain that's been torn like is isn't is a message of hope in the wake of violence too you know like it's not only this it's not only the upper rooms it's the road to Emmaus too where Jesus decides to just stroll along the road with people for a really long time and there's the action movie version of that story where they don't know that the person who's coming to exact revenge on them is standing next to them. Um, but in this one, he just invites them to some food. Yeah. And they share a meal together. Like, I, I, yeah, those, those are, those are important checks on the, on the regular imagination, the, the sort of film imagination that I I feel entrenched in, 
so much. Adam, I feel like I went to church. Thank you for that. Uh, let's let's turn and take some time for our last segment and we'll say goodbye to Skyfall for the week and turn towards postludes, which is just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, hit me up. What's your postlude um, for the week? Right. So my postlude for the week, as we enter into Holy Week, which um, when this this comes out, we'll 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 be in. I I find that Holy Week. Everybody has their own postures. Everyone has their own sort of practices. Some people prefer their Maundy Thursday service to their Good Friday service. Some people need a Holy Saturday vigil. Um, one of the things that's been really helpful for me in the past is I find that some of the best religious poetry it like spends time in Holy Week. And so I would encourage people if they've got a little bit of time and they've got an internet connection um, to read some poetry during this time, because I don't know, I feel like, I feel like Holy Week with all of its, I mean, it's called the passion, right? It, it, it passion week in, in many places, it's full of so much pathos and emotion and depth that this is the time of the year where you want the poets to come in. You know, maybe on Trinity Sunday, you need the theologian to come in and try and organize some of these crazy thoughts or, you know, in, in other places, you, you know, you might need the mystics. But like, I feel like Holy Week is an invitation for the poets to discuss and, and be present. So here are a couple of poems that I would encourage you to read and I will and they will be from lots of different ages. So um my Thankful Heart with Glorying Tongue at Anne Bradstreet, the really amazing colonial poet, American colonial poet. Um, the Donkey by G.K. Chesterton, totally worth um, reading. Uh, this Bread I Break by Dylan Thomas. Uh, Simon the Cyrene by County Cullen. Uh, the Ballad of Mary's Son by Langston Hughes. Uh, a Good Friday, And A Good Friday Was Had by All by Bruce Daw. Crucifixion by Anna Akhmatova. Uh, Idiot Psalm with Fear Scott Cairns. Scott Cairns wrote a bunch of these things called Idiot Psalms. They're all almost, uh, they're all amazing. Uh, some of my favorites. Um, On Belief in the Physical Resurrection of Christ by Denise Levertov. And then um, Mary Ann Bernard's Resurrection. And these are just as like a, just a smattering. If any of those sound interesting to you, I would encourage you to do so. If you want to get a full list of those, um, I'll, I'll put them on our show page. Awesome. Thank you, Adam. I find that there's always like some bit of music or some bit of art that ends up lingering with me or um, the background to sermon writing during Holy Week or something like that. And maybe those words will, will find their way in uh, this particular time through. Yeah, thanks. So what about you? So um, I'm going to go in a totally different direction this week. It's been sort of a weird week in art, and I want to talk about it a little bit. Uh, one of the first major essays most students on their way through media studies or art history or film degrees read is uh, Walter Benjamin's foundational 1935 essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. 
mm-hmm. in which Benjamin notes the ways in which the technology of photography and its other cousins changes and diminishes the sort of specialness of what he calls the aura of something like a painting. Basically, if everybody can have the Mona Lisa as their phone backdrop, what's the point of going to see the Mona Lisa? This week, I feel like we are reaching new frontiers in a world that Benjamin would only barely have imagined. Uh, on March 25th, Kevin Roos of the New York Times published a piece called Buy This Column on the Blockchain, in which he explained the most recent phenomenon in cryptocurrency, which is called the NFT. An NFT is a non-fungible token. It's a bit of code on the internet, like an image, but it's stamped with a unique signature protected by the blockchain. So it's like a bit of cryptocurrency, but it's also like a pretty picture, which means that unlike every other picture on the internet, yours can be totally unique, even if it looks like all the other ones. So Roos takes this column and he makes an NFT out of it. He makes one single image backed by blockchain and he auctions it off to raise money for the Times' corporate charity wing. It's worth remembering that at this point that Benjamin was in some ways optimistic about modernism and mechanical reproduction. He was a Marxist (laughs) thinker who thought that diminishing the specialness of singular works of art would be good news for the revolution. But capitalism has been much more resilient than he imagined, which is how it came to pass that yesterday Roos's NFT of his Times column sold on auction for more than half a million dollars to somebody with a stupid amount of money to spend That's on a crazy on a jpeg he bought a jpeg for half a million dollars you can still read the column of course you can still see the jpeg you just don't get the special version this all the special nft version comes with at the end of the day is specialness all it comes with is the story All it comes with is this sense that you have something that nobody else has, even when they all still sort of have it. My brain also hurts reading this, but I think there are some stories in here about the human condition that preachers might be able to use or at least should be aware of. First of all, it turns out that people will spend tremendous amounts of money for the sense of uniqueness, even if the thing which is unique is dumb. We are all so afraid of being forgotten that I think the ability to have something irreplaceable is almost priceless. But also too many people have too much money. There's a new Netflix doc out about forgery in the art world called Made You Look, which I have not yet seen, but I still want you to go read about it. I want you to read Kelsey McKinney's piece about it at Defector where she points out that these beautifully forged paintings are actually still incredibly beautiful. We'll put a link to this article in the show notes. It's a great piece. And she makes the argument that the real crime isn't actually the reproduction. It's the billionaires who trade on these pieces like their cattle futures. So the real lament is that in the age of mechanical reproduction, aura and uniqueness are just another vehicle for investment. That's my postlude for the week, Adam. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a major look, right? Like it's a it's it's such a fitting title because it's sleight of hand, right? It's yeah. you tell everyone that this is important, and by telling everyone that's important, then you profit off of it. And if you can convince enough people that it's really important, 
then uh then you can sell it and uh, yeah it's a i i you know the question of the art art and the art world is being upended in ways that i maybe i mean here's my sincere question to you right which is do you think that people felt similarly when duchamp's urinal like came and like was placed in paris right did they look at it and go like that's no no that's not how this works i mean you know the, the accounts of that is the are, are the scandal of it being a urinal like it being something that is not beautiful and that beauty the art was supposed to go with beauty and now art is it, but the ready-made was a part of it right that it wasn't yeah. it wasn't he wasn't he can make it he just signed it and that's and that's the i mean i think uh, on the one hand with all with all these the with technology there's the question of like okay so what counts as art and how do you if there are people who are creating graphic art made on a computer and they want it to have a singular identity much like a painting would what do you how do you do that now that's an interesting art question but the ways in which the art world and art investments intrude onto that question yeah. is incredibly hard to like pull out and tease out of it right I mean, yeah. this, and, I, was and I think to... that's why that's why mckinney's essay is so good because she's pointing out that like there's that there's no pure way of having this conversation because it's all just now investment speculation and so because it's so loaded with questions of capital there's there's no way for having a conversation about what art for art's sake even potentially means um which yeah, and how do you? you know, how, if, how can if I... James Bond will return, then there's not much you can. Then there's only so much you can do every time, right? <laughs> right, without devaluing your art. Right. Yeah, and that's the hard thing is like art and property are are colliding in a way that makes it really hard to consider either, with respect to like, is this mine? That is, this is my property, I own it. And is this art? I mean, those are two separate questions, but it's really hard to have to answer either with respect to a product without talking about the other. More like I want, yeah, I want another, give me an update next time. Well, you know, once once the half million dollar check clears, I'll, uh, I'll let you know. <laughs> it was you, you were the one. <laughs> all right everybody that about wraps up our show for today if you like the show be sure to leave a rating on itunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it wrong we'd love to hear your feedback drop us a line on our facebook or twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com special thanks of course to our friends at christian century and to the fine editing skills of Derek weston our news today was composed by bobby brinkerhoff big thanks to him and his band komodo stack thanks matt thanks adam <laughs>